1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Christopher Rose. It seems like there's been a lot of attention on Central Asia and the Silk Route lately. There have been books about the region's political history, economic history, and the trade in goods that have gone back and forth has long fascinated readers of all ages. But it's rarely appreciated how much of the history of medicine in the pre-modern period has also hinged on the cross-same cross-cultural interactions and knowledge transmissions that guided trade and other interactions along the Silk Route. That's just changed with the publication of Reorienting Histories of Medicine, Encounters Along the Silk Roads, by Ronit Ueli Tlalim. Using manuscripts found in key Eurasian nodes of the medieval world, Dunhuang, Kucha, the Geniza, and Tabriz, in multiple languages, this fascinating and much-needed book analyzes a number of case studies of Eurasian medical encounters, giving a voice to places, language, people, and narratives which were once prominent but have gone silent. This is a really important book for those interested in the history of medicine, as well as the transmissions of knowledge that have taken place over the course of global history. I really enjoyed reading this, and I hope you'll enjoy my interview with Ronit. Ronit Ueli-Tlalim is a reader in history at Goldsmiths University of London in the UK. She's the co-editor of Rashida Dean, agent and mediator of cultural exchanges in Ilhanid, Iran, Islam and Tibet, interactions along the musk routes, and astromedicine, astrology and medicine, East and West. Here's our interview. Ronit Yoeli Tzalim, welcome to the New Books Network. Our traditional first question is about yourself. Uh, so tell us more about you, uh, where you're from, your academic background, and what led you to become interested in this topic.
2: So first of all, thank you for having me. Um, uh, I'm from from Israel so i did my undergraduate and ma um in israel um and then i came to london to the school of oriental and african studies to do my my phd in tibetan buddhism um my my father grew up in in vienna and we had a kind of really european household and i was i when i growing up i thought that i was european and then when I came to Europe, I realized that no, I'm actually Middle Eastern, and I think that that kind of reposition, disposition, displacement, that in a way is inherent to to my people,
0: mm-hmm.
2: made me think maybe think about questions that um, about belonging, about localities, about identities. Um, issues that somehow I I come back to over and over again. You think you're one thing, but you're actually another. You come from one place, but what does that mean? Um, and and these issues that I I have um, been constantly uh, interested in, and that come in the book in in various forms. Um, also, in in the book, I talk more specifically. In the in the preface, which is pretty personal, I talk about the, how I came to be interested in in Tibetan um, Tibetan studies, and um, and I say that so before becoming an academic, I was a journalist, and uh, um, and and I say that I've always had this dream to to go to to Tibet, and that was finally. Um, well, that finally happened when when some kind of string job in Lhasa fell into my lap. Um, but then, when writing the book, I I revisited this very n- narrative of myself and and said, but wait a minute, why did I always have this dream to to go to Tibet? And and I go back to to a story we read in school in year five or so. Which is Lost Horizon, and you know, I had to admit to myself, um, almost embarrassingly, that that was the beginning. Um, and and so and so, I wanted to to one of the things that I wanted to look into in the book is is these these narratives that that make a deep impression on us. Why? Why is it and And what can we learn from them? so so this is um kind of in short um, how how i how I came to some of these topics that I talk about in the book
1: uh, and and what interested you in the in the, specifically the history of medicine
2: so the the history of medicine, so i at first i I dealt more with um with religion and history of religion um but the and bit by bit i came into into medicine and history of medicine and what i find really fascinating in in history of medicine is that it it somehow it allows you to to look at um its history in a much more direct way than the history of religions what i mean to say by that is that religions tend to hide say things like influences um, I remember for example um, when um, uh, Anna Akaso and myself were at the Warburg Institute and we were looking at narratives of the history of um, history of the Buddha so this narrative that comes from from India it, we looked at the transmission into into Arabic um, uh, via Rashid dean but also other transmissions and then um from arabic into hebrew and then the the whole buddhist story of of the um the history of the of the buddha becomes very obscure and becomes uh, an islamic story or or a jewish story because once it it transforms to, an, to another culture the the there is a, a desire to cover up um, so that it it will function in the new context. Whereas in history of medicine, you you can see through the seams, as it were, more easily. And so, for for a historian working on transmissions of knowledge, there's a lot to to unpick and to. Um, to question and to 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 dig into um and and history of medicine travels very very easily because um you know people want to get the the best kind of knowledge uh from anywhere there's no limitation as as you'd find in other spheres of of knowledge so so it's a field that that is very fruitful to um, to look at transmissions uh, of knowledge.
1: I want to start by asking you to explain the significance of the title of the book, Reorienting Histories of Medicine. Uh, you go into this in the introduction, and you're playing with both the dominant paradigm as well as giving a nod to André Gunder Frank. Uh, could you tell us more about the questions that you're raising here and why?
2: so when i um w- when I bring up this term reorienting capital r and capital o um there's a few things that i'm I'm trying to do first of all to to establish this connection between to, or to bring up the the um, the connection between the east and our orientation, so where we are. Positions uh, and the the definition of ourselves vis a vis the world wherever we we may be. So how how in a way the the East defines our our outlook. And uh, the the second thing is um, this idea that also Gunter Frank does the, that's moving away from from a Eurocentric bias or that. Um, Bringing back the importance of of the East in terms of not just the history of the East but the history of of global knowledge of global medicine um so in a way this is also what gunde does in terms of world economy um I'm saying that you know similarly we can do um this this move when we think about. Transmissions of knowledge and the the history the history of medicine at large. We have to look at the bigger picture in order to understand um, even things like uh, European um, European medical knowledge. So that's the reorienting, bringing bringing back the the orient as as an essential part of the story.
1: Another dominant theme in the book is uh, your argument uh, the, of a Eurasian contact zone. Um, in short, discussing what happened in the more local connections in the middle of the what we come to know as the Silk Route, uh, rather than what was happening on either end of it. Um, can you uh, talk a little bit about what that lens offers uh, both historians of medicine as well as as other historians?
2: So the, what I try to to do in the book is to look at the at the Silk Roads in a way that that um, mo- moves away from the the dominance of the of the end point. So bringing the focus on the in between, what happened at this in this vast area of um, multiple interactions, multiple languages. So so what that brings is a kind of moving away from the, from the grand cultures to the lesser known, um, lesser known cultures. So, you know, I'm saying if you want to, if you want to learn, if you want to study, if you want to research um, world history, then it's not enough just to, to focus on what happened in China and what happened in, in Greece, uh, and or Rome, um, in more people should be studying not just Latin and Chinese, but the the multiple languages, um, in between. Um, and that brings about a lot of difficulty because these are, um, it, it's a kind of vicious cycle because they are lesser known, they're they're less less funded. Less people would tend to 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 know and want to to study them, um, mm-hmm. and and so they 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 continue to 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 create less less scholarship, uh, less positions, less um, less research, and and therefore continue to be to be lesser known. But we need to. To find ways to to realize that they these in between cultures um, are are very important and um, um, yeah and that that's part of what in the book I talk about this in relation to the history of medicine but I think it's relevant for 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 other fields um, as well I mean there it's even true for you know languages like like arabic or persian that are not studied enough and uh, and there's still so much material to for scholars to to look at and whereas people continue to to study latin and and greek and so on so it's a call to to but that's another way of reorienting. It's a call to, to remember that these are very important cultures and and um, and should be studied and funded, and researched.
1: Your first chapter examines some of the narratives that give a Eurasian account of the history of medicine. And one of the things I really like here is uh, your insistence on not separating out texts that incorporate events that are commonly uh, referred to somewhat dismissively as, quote unquote, mythical uh, from those that are considered more authentically. And again, I'll use quotes here, historical. Uh, Can you talk about some of these texts and what they show?
2: Yeah. um, So I think I first thought about this this issue when um, when I was studying um, early on the the history of, of Buddhism, and the so, so we have the the narratives of of the life of of the Buddha, uh, which incorporate a lot of so called mythical elements, um, but then in, in the way they were translated or uh, transformed transmitted into accounts of say western scholarship when they were retelling the the story of the life of the buddha they were telling the story without omitting these um these elements so so they'd say you know if it was uh, the the buddha was a prince in the Traditional story that that would appear, but if the the narrative says then that as soon as the Buddha was born, he took seven steps, that was not appearing, and so mm-hmm. that that was the first time I I thought about this um kind of picking out the the the, the what seemed to these scholars or or whoever whoever was was rewriting the the story the the bits that they chose to to leave out so so i was um this is when i i began to be interested in in this process and then um when i was when i started working on on the history of medicine and came across these really fascinating narrative that we find in tibetan medical histories that um the king invited a a doctor from 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 China, a doctor from India, and a doctor from the West, and the the doctor from the West was Galenos, the famous Galen, the Roman, um, the Roman physician. Um, um, uh, the king from but the the physician from, from China was the Yellow Emperor, who's you know a, f- a fictitious figure, and similarly the, the one from India is a fictitious figure. And that again, that narrative was then when it was retold in secondary literature. Um, what we found is that, well, the, first of all, the the narrative continues that the the three of them sat together and wrote uh, wrote books and discussed things, etc. And then the king uh, sent away the the Indian doctor and the Chinese doctor, but he kept. This Galenos as a court physician, and he set up a school and had children, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then what we found in secondary literature is that it said that um, Tibetan medicine from its uh, early stages incorporated uh, Greek uh, Greek elements based on on this story. So I said, wait a minute. Um, what what can we learn first of all from the fact that Galen's colleagues, as it were, here are are mythical? Um, does it, how how should we understand the story? Um, and then what is the what is the significance of these mythical and semi mythical elements? Um, they are there for a reason. And what are they trying to tell us? What are they trying to emphasize? And then, how does that um, um, how does that manifest in 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 the actual medical text? Um, is it the same or different? Is it that there is a, a kind of narrative that tries to paint a picture that is actually different from what the content of of the medical text that we have suggest. And does it tell us anything about the the period that it's trying to describe, or is it more about the, the period in which these texts are written? It's the second option. So um, all these things I think are are really interesting questions when you when you don't shy away from Mythical elements in so called historical narratives, uh, but try to understand why are they there and what are they trying to to tell us um, not just you know cut them out uh, but but try to understand the significance um, and the the way that they are woven together into um real events, real people, um, and so on.
1: Another distinction uh, that you argue, and I will confess that when I read this, I got up and did a a little happy dance because... Um, it's something that I've spent quite a bit of time thinking about, um, is the distinction between, uh, what today might be considered, uh, quote unquote medical practice and what we would in the modern day consider, uh, divination or magic. Um, and you argue that again, when we're talking about, uh, the pre-modern period, this is not a particularly useful distinction to draw. Um, and this is particularly. Uh, prescient uh, in chapter 2 where you discuss the, the so-called Bauer manuscript um, so can you tell us uh, more about these texts um, and what they tell us about the way medicine was practiced um, in uh, Central and East Central Asia in, in the late first millennium
2: so first of all if if I cause anyone to have to... Go out and do a happy dance, then my work is done. Um, okay, your work is done. <laughs> <laughs> but um, back to um, reality. Um, I think these. Um, I find these these blurry boundaries between um, what we what we now call. Medical practice, magic and and divination are really interesting um, to look at historically, but also what the does that mean about how how we perceive these things today. Um, and um, there there's a central there are a few central issues that that weave these these things together. Um basically the, um, what medicine, the medical practice tries to do is is look at at signs that that appear before the the physician and and from that deduce what's going to happen. Um, so it's a form of of prognosis that is in some respects similar to divination. You look at signs. And you say, okay, this is what's going to happen. It's true that today we're, we're better equipped to, to foretell the, the future in that way. But there are things that, that we, we can learn even from the way the, these texts, the Bauer Manuscript and, and other texts deal with this fundamental issue of, of the human desire to manage the unknown um and so so this issue of managing the unknown which ties in these two things together the or three things together the medicine divination and and magic is is about several things what, one of them is about understanding the or can be about understanding the the patient deeply and we found in a lot of in these texts they it's not just, you know, hocus pocus that's totally irrelevant, but but it's about understanding the the person that that is that is in, in front of you, um, to to the point that ripens what what Jung would call intuition. So so Jung, when he talks about in his introduction to uh, to the I Ching, he says, "What is this whole divination thing? Um, what What does it do to us? It It ripens something that is that is in us, some kind of understanding that we cannot place a a specific perhaps rational or medical term, but it ripens a deeper intuition." That we can term intuition. And I think that's that's something that that ties these these things together in a way that is instructive to to us to to think about, even when we when we consider or when we think about what medicine is today and what different forms of medicine are today what do they do, what they don't do, um and and how they deal with this basic issue of managing the unknown. Because there there will always be some unknown. Um there's obviously less unknowns today, but there's still a lot of unknowns. Um it's not medicine is not an exact science. Um mm-hmm. It, we we are dealing with with human beings that are very complex and and difficult to 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 understand um and so um th- these kinds of questions as they come up in the in the text that that i talk about i think um bring out these um these issues and actually just yesterday I was reading again um, something that um, uh, Desi Sangye Gyatso the, the regent of the fifth Dalai Lama said that wrote at the end of the 17th century or beginning of 18th century about um, so he wrote about medicine and about divination um, and he said um, something along the lines of you know, divination allows us in, in, in certain cases not to um, need to rely on guesswork. Um, so, so there are times and questions that you don't know what, as a physician, you don't know what, what to do. And, and divination, um, or you might call it magic, or um, whatever um, helps you to to understand or to to realize what to do, so you don't rely on guesswork.
1: Yeah, this this really resonated with me because um, in reading about uh, the history of medicine in the Islamic world, um, there is a dated but still relatively standard text where this. It, this distinction is made and uh, it's always struck me as odd because, um, this distinction between medicine and magic is entirely modern and, um, projected backwards, right, in time. And, the people who were doing this would not have considered those different. Um, And another thing, of course, that that routinely pops up is is the sort of modern prescription of what is textual Islam um, as distinct from what is usually dismissed as folk religion, as if the practitioners would have recognized those as two distinct entities. Um, And and so when you were talking about this, it, it really just resonated that what we're seeing is this Modern interpretation of what this practice was, but it would not have been recognized as such by the people who are practicing it.
2: Definitely, and and that that's a really important point. Also, well, first of all, that you know, as historians, we always have to look at at the at the text in the eyes of of the people who who wrote it and used it. So, f- for them. There was no distinction at all. There, it, it's one field, and therefore we cannot do like like uh, we spoke earlier about the the narratives. You know, um, mm-hmm. delete the the bits that that look mythical to us, so so we don't repeat them in our narratives. No, it's part of the narrative. No, it's part of the practice of the medical practice. We can't say okay, we're only studying the the rational sides of this medicine and we're not interested in the what we call non-rational it's all part of of the practice it's all part of the same understanding um and we can't and it's, it's kind of basic i think um historical practice not to impose our own ideas and outlooks and and judgment on and what counts and what doesn't count they saw it as one and so we need to see it as one Mm -hmm. I think that's really really important
1: Um, so having looked at these um, these things and your book has these wonderful illustrations um, in particular of uh, the dice that were used um, to To do these divinations. Um, There's some great illustrations in this book. I I hope that they remain uh, if it goes into paperback.
2: I'll try and make sure.
1: You then look specifically at things that have spread uh, uh, through Eurasia uh, as a result of of the the movement and exchange of ideas. Um, Chapter three focuses on something I had never heard of before, uh, myrobalans, which was a popular substance, highly prized as medicine. Um, so tell us more about them and why they were in such high demand.
2: So, uh, first of all, maybe you haven't heard them as marabalans, but if you go to your local health food shop, uh, you will find the three marabalans sold. Um, they're sold in the name of, the, the based on their Sanskrit name, the, they're sold as tripala. Mm. They're found basically everywhere um, and so I, I'm i really fascinated by these super drugs um, um, some years ago I was working on the Islamic Tibet uh, project at the Warburg Institute we looked at mosque and how that featured in the in the Eurasian um, cultural exchanges and transmissions of knowledge between the Islamic World and and Tibet or between Tibet and the Islamic world and how that ch- transmits and and uh, goes across borders of, of medical understanding and um, marbuls are are similarly really fascinating um, substance so they're they're really useful for a lot of things. Um, and they appear as as a kind of cure all in in so many different cultural contexts that that I looked at um, across Eurasia, and and what I was fascinated by is um, how when looking at a super drug like that, um, it's really interesting to see how the the medical knowledge and the the, the stories around it and the, the trade information around it, um, when, when meshed together, they bring out um, a, a really rich story. Um, so for example, the um, marablons are found in, um, they, they are the, it's a plant, it's three different variations of the plant, and in the um, um, there is an important Buddhist um, image of the the medicine Buddha. So the emanation of the Buddha that is responsible for for healing. Mm-hmm. Um, in the in the visual depictions of the medicine Buddha, he is holding um, a on plant. So it's it's that important. In the in the Buddhist um, in the Buddhist context and similarly in in rituals that are associated with the medicine Buddha the substance that is used is Marambalan. Um and then all the way to to Maimonides in in the Cairo Geniza that basically recommends it for everything and so what what I was trying to um uh, to figure out is does this knowledge of, or or this PR of this substance as a cure all does that travel with uh, how does that travel? Do, do these fantastic stories about this substance curing everything um, and and being almost a, a mythical kind of substance. Uh, that we find in 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 different Buddhist context and uh, practice and ritual, does that travel with the substance itself? So so that does does that travel when we when we when we follow the the trade from of, of medicinal substances from from India into into Cairo and thereafter to to Europe? Um, does it? um come with, with with traders say okay look this is really good stuff you should take this um and then transmits into into medical knowledge so um so there in, in this chapter i probe these connections and these um uh ways of of um constructing um a panacea a, a cure-all um so yeah i think it's a really interesting uh, substance to 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 look at all these uh questions
1: it, it was it was certainly fascinating especially when you see things attributed to it like uh it being said that that people were living a couple of centuries uh, if they took it on a regular basis and and what again appear to be very fantastical things but just sort of emphasizing the the miracle nature of this this potent drug
2: but but again so that that ties into what we were talking about earlier so there is again the the interaction between the fantastic and and the real uh, because I talk about something I talk about in the book is this this idea that in India stuff grows that that is that will give you a very long life or sometimes eternal life and and this is a kind of a motif that that I return to in in different parts of the book and that adds to or, or plays a part in the allure that that you have uh of these substances that, that come from India to the Middle East um, and, and later to, to Europe. Um, okay, this, this thing is from India. It, it's going to cure you from from everything. That's something that the, the, we do find in, in medical prescriptions, but it, it builds on these fantastical ideas um, that are not necessarily medical so these stories that in india you find th- these wondrous drugs these uh, trees of life all these things that, that, that go way way back and keep coming up in in myths and stories but but they 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 trickle deep mm-hmm. so um and you know even in films hollywood films today we have this this idea that you know there is the in the East lies the, the the secret to to long life and to the these um these these ideas that that operate both on the on the mythical uh, level and on the practical level. So so what I try to do I think throughout the book is is see how these two um interact the 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 mythical the mythical ideas and the stories that that trickle deep and, and how they they interact with, with real life stuff.
1: Chapter four then looks at one of the apparently widespread practices that is found um throughout this Eurasian context and that is uh or uh moxicottery which is the practice of healing parts of the body uh, for therapeutic and preventative purposes, um, can you describe the practice and and how it was received in in various contexts?
2: So, um, I think people generally know about um, acupuncture. Mm-hmm. So, in acupuncture, you you, you puncture the, the body in specific points. In in moxibustion, you you heat points often the same points but not necessarily so heating different points in the body to to do whatever to move blocks stuff or energy or, or whatever you might be you might be doing so so it's about heating these these spots or these these specific locations uh this is very common in, in chinese medicine and uh, in Tibetan medicine, in in Chinese medicine, to to this day, you know, if you go to a Chinese doctor or a doctor practicing Chinese medicine, they they light something that looks like a big cigar, and and then put it in near a specific locations. The the Tibetan practices um, tend to to uh, burn a little bundle of same substance but on the skin so it's a little bit less pleasant. Um, and further west we have um, a similar practice uh, that that uh, heats or or sometimes burns locations in the body uh, with with hot iron. Mm. So the, this chapter starts out with the, the work that I've been doing on the Tibetan medical manuscripts from, from Dunhuang. Uh, Dunhuang is an important uh, nexus on the Silk Roads where about 100 years ago they found a, a cave, uh, the so-called library cave, where a few tons of manuscripts were sealed for over a thousand years, um, so that library is a fascinating treasure trove mm-hmm. for for uh, researching um, transmissions uh, of knowledge. Um, to be fair, most of the texts are Buddhist and they are in Chinese, but uh, there's enough other texts. So I I've been working on the Tibetan medical manuscripts. From there, um, and then I, um, together with a colleague with uh, Vivian Lowe from UCL, I looked at. Uh, she was working on the Chinese uh, texts. and so we looked at how they how they compare. They're and they're basically very very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the interesting thing about, uh, well, there's, there are a lot of different interesting things about them, but a few to point out here is uh, one, that they, um, they're what uh, Vivian Lo has called household medicine. So they're very easy to, to use. And um, the way that the, the practice is described, anyone can follow. Whereas for acupuncture, you need to be very precise and very knowledgeable. Here, the the way that it's described would say something like, uh, uh, "Measure three fingers above the belly and burn seventeen moxas um, in case that you have blah blah and blah." Mm-hmm. So, you know, everyone can use it, um, and um, it it appears to to uh, Function in a way that goes beyond what we tend to call learned medicine and and the other thing that that is really fascinating in it, both in the practice and the transmission of it um, is that it comes together with um, illustrations, and these are some of the earliest illustrations w- we have. Um, And that, and those, so we have the the knowledge, the construction of that knowledge, and the technology being paper, these are early days of paper, Mm -hmm. um, we're talking 9th, 10th century, um, how that that comes together. Um, So because there is a, a, a growing availability of paper that allows for people to sketch uh kind of rough drawings uh of of a human body and with things that are like dots and arrows to say okay burn here burn here burn here uh-huh. um and then uh, together with with the, the text that describes it uh, in in more detail. Um, so then we have another really fascinating example of similar um, illustrations. With not a lot of text that that come from slightly further west. Another important point on the Silk Road, uh, Turfan, where we have a Uyghur uh, example. Mm-hmm of this it's not clear when it's from but probably from around the 12th century so we see this kind of practice moving moving west and then i make the leap in the book but i leave it open in the sense of we are not sure how exactly that leap goes but we find a similar slightly later but similar kind of practices also in in Anatolia and and I try to draw the, the the possible connections and places where that kind of knowledge would have gone through mm-hmm. so whereas in in the previous chapter I look at a at a substance and uh, how we can trace its transmission what I do in this chapter is is say oh here's a here's a Practice that's fairly easy to use, especially when you accompany it with with images or drawings that are now becoming more and more easy to do because we have the technology, meaning paper, um, and and how that allows for the 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 specific construction of or a a construction of a specific kind of hands-on, easy to use. Uh, knowledge that then is able to transmit uh, across uh, long geographical areas.
1: Your final chapter looks at uh, Mongol-era Iran as a center for intellectual exchange, where ideas from China and Tibet mingle with ideas from Central Asia, uh, the Middle East, the Mediterranean, um, and apparently uh, ideas spread as far west as England, uh, can you describe how this this knowledge hub worked and why it was so successful at this particular period?
2: So this this period and specifically the 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 work of um, Rashid adin in in this period as um, is a is a topic, I, I began to be interested in when we were working on the Islam and, and Tibet project. The the interesting thing about the the Mongol era. Um, Is that being an empire of uh, so under one roof you have a lot of different cultures, and beyond the kind of the the popular view of the the Mongol era as being, you know, a time of destruction and death and so on, there was also a lot of cultural interaction going on, and one of the most interesting um, places of that cultural interaction was was um, in Tabriz under the direction of Rashid Din, who was a, himself a doctor, but also a minister. So he set up a kind of scholar's town um, in, in Tabriz, which is northern Iran of, of today. That was the, the Mongol uh, Western court. So after the Mongol Empire disintegrated into four different courts, that was the the westernmost um court the the Ilhanid, mm-hmm. And there, um so he brought into he said, This is an amazing opportunity. We have under one roof, we have people from all these different cultures. Let's bring them together. We we'll will place them in, in in this town, the Radalashidi, and we'll we'll feed them, we'll give them um the, the conditions with which they can discuss and write and produce knowledge, so it's it's a, an incredible initiative if you if you think about it. This is happening in the 13th century, mm-hmm. um, and and so we have he gathered people from from China, from Tibet, from India, uh, from all over the the, the Mongol uh, empire, and he sat them together, and so. Um, we mostly know about his uh, what's called the, the world history, where where he got them together to write uh, a world history, but there's also um, interesting attempts in in medicine. Uh, so um, there is the the first uh, what they produced there is is um, a Persian account of Chinese medicine, the Tansukhname um again with with illustrations and there's still work to be done on this fascinating text um and um but but it's it's a really interesting um um, example of of how medical knowledge um, moved um at this time um and in the chapter I also talk about uh, an example of what I try to bring in other parts of the book of of what I call uh, the- cu- cultural meridians so we 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 tend to make the distinctions of okay this is eastern medicine this is western medicine uh, this is Asian this is European, mm-hmm. but actually when you look at places where these uh, where there are fuzzy borders between them, it's interesting to see what what happens so so in this chapter um, one of the things i I do is look at this link between Tabriz, which is as I said northern Iran and Trebizond, which was an important point in Byzantium, mm-hmm. and we see that there is um going back and forth of of people trying to to learn from each other so so there is not so the 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 some of the of the texts that and the transmissions that i that I talk about there um that go for example from Persian into greek the 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 point of talking about that that transmission line. Is something that I tried to do more generally in the book is kind of break the this this idea of that the translation movement is all about Greek into Arabic into Latin that that the history of medicine is just you know all coming from Greece mm-hmm. uh, babysat in inverted commas by by Islamic culture for a few hundred years or almost a thousand years and then brought back to to Europe in the translation movement from Arabic into Latin. So what I try to do in the book is saying it's much more complicated than that and and the the movement goes goes in all directions and there is an important input not only of Islamic culture but also of of Asian culture that fed into Islamic culture. And medicine here is is one aspect of it that then got uh, translated or came into into Europe. So this um, this link that I look at in in this chapter of of Tabriz Trebizond and kind of going the the other way as it were. Um, so translations of Persian into Greek. Uh, uh, some something that uh Maria of Rudy has, from Berkeley has been working on um i think is is really important to to help us rewrite this dominant narrative of of the of the translation movement in in the singular move it to a more reoriented Narrative and a more plural way of, of looking at these directions and transmissions. Mm-hmm. So,
1: our traditional final question is: uh, What are you working on now? What's your What's your next project?
2: So, I just um, I just finished uh, co-editing a, a special issue um, of the journal Asian Medicine, mm-hmm. um, looking at uh, Asian responses to COVID-19, which includes historical uh, and anthropological elements. So I think some of these understandings that I, that come from these very early periods, they are relevant for us to think about today. So we're not. there is significance to these kinds of general questions in the way that we think about medicine today. So that's coming out, um, I think, in the next few months. Um, and then I'm trying to. I think the, the book opened up a lot of a lot of uh, windows that um, I would like to to go on. There are there are some questions that I haven't managed to answer, and I'd like to go deeper into. That said, to to write, what I'd like to do is to um, have a a big collaborative project um, that would bring together a few people working on these very precarious uh, languages and and cultures. And um, yeah, so I'm trying to to write up a a big uh, grant application, or actually. Find the the conditions that will allow me to to write a big grant application because that is a lot of work in itself. Mm-hmm. So I hope that uh, that I find the the place and the time to do that.
1: Well, excellent, and I wish you all the luck with that. Um, this is a great book, and I, I can't wait to see uh, more of your your work and and what you come up with next.
2: Thank you.
1: Reorienting Histories of Medicine, Encounters Along the Silk Roads uh, was published in 2021 by Bloomsbury Press. Ronit Yuali Tlalim, thank you so much for being with us.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: And we'll see you next
0: episode.